Hi, this is Steve Roost and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week we give you the best news, views and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians. The companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost. Each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the leaders, clinicians, CEOs and founders that are changing the face of healthcare in the UK and beyond. As regular listeners will know, I am a founder of a healthcare venture myself called PocDoc. PocDoc support the show. Um, PocDoc, as as people, regular listeners will know, is revolutionizing the way that screening for cardiovascular disease is done by enabling anyone to do it with their smartphone or tablet, um, generating blood marker values and a full heart risk assessment inside of eight minutes in clinical and non-clinical environments. So that's all very exciting. Um, Thanks. As ever, to the UK Health Radio team for the platform, for the live platform, um, Johan and his team do a fantastic job. It's not just me on the station. There's lots of other presenters doing lots of other great content. Um, and so thank you to everyone that's listening live right now. Thank you also if you are listening on any of the podcast platforms, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music, Apple or Acast. Uh, or if you're watching us on YouTube where we syndicate this out, or if you're, you know, looking at one of the clips. So thank you very much for listening. We realize now we looked at the data and we have listeners in over 45 countries every month, which is amazing. And it's growing. So thank you very much. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you guys. Um, just also a note, you can get all of the UK Health Radio shows, not just ours, but all of them on the UK Health Radio channel on um, the podcast platforms so you can either come to the health tech hour channel or you can go to the uk health radio channel where all of the shows are available so um last week we had brian plakis cheng on from OpenRad, who are revolutionizing the radiology space trying to unblock or free up capacity in the nhs and other healthcare systems by making it easier to process x-rays and mri scans through the system that actually had an amazing response across the board, both from clinicians and just from people. It seemed to be a topic that really resonated with people. So thank you very much for all of your comments and questions and, and you know, likes and shares of all of that content. If you want to go and listen to it, you can go check it out on Spotify right now. It's episode 83. So let's turn to this week. This week, we have Sophie Park on the show, who is one of the most experienced digital health advisors in the world. She is currently a managing director at the pharma giant Bayer uh, and an advisor to Bill and Melinda Gates, to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I'm sorry. So Bayer, for those of you who don't know, is one of the largest pharmaceutical businesses in the world, um, actually based in a place called Leverkusen, where I have actually been many times for random reasons. But yes. So um, Sophie, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks for having me, Steve. Um, Doing very well. Excited to be on here. Excited to always talk about digital health and my opinions in that space. <laughs> if right. people will listen. <laughs> well, you know, they, they they can turn off if they want to, but I'm sure that they won't. So um, where are you calling from today? Where are you actually based? 
I am actually calling from Boston, but I'm supposed to be based in Berlin, actually. Our entire team is out in Berlin, um, but I've been in Boston for about a year now, and so I, I go back and forth. Okay. Not in uh, Leverkusen? Jesus, no. No? I mean, I shouldn't say it that way, but no, no, definitely no. not in Leverkusen. Well, but there's a difference yeah. between Berlin and Leverkusen, which is why I suspect yeah. that people are in Berlin. Two, two different worlds, yeah. But uh, actually, we have... Um, our new innovation hub here um, is called the Brick uh, for Research Innovation Center, and so Bayer recently just opened that. Actually, it was actually opened right, right, right before the pandemic. Right. Um, so that kind of set things back. But yeah, we do have a big space here, and so I'm usually back and forth. But here, it's a lot of biotech, um, yeah. and I'm obviously digital health. So does <laughs> does Brick stand for Bayer Research and Innovation Center by any chance? It does. I yes, like that. Yes. That's a good, that's a good acronym. The brick. Acronym. Yeah. The brick. Yeah. That's the good. The brick. All right. Because <laughs> cool. it's literally well, look, a brick I, building too. <laughs> that's, that's, that's good. So um, what we normally do on the show is we kind of take a bit of a journey through how you've gotten to where you are today, you know, yeah. and like your journey on. So I know that you've done lots of different things and lots of exciting things, um, both in the kind of private space, but also in the um, not-for-profit space. Um, and I know that you've got a lot of, of, of thoughts and views on, on digital health just generally. I think I'd really like to delve into what the some of the some of the things around pharma, big pharma, if you like, and particularly why and how big pharma is interested in digital health, right? As like pharmaceutical businesses that generally are geared around making drugs why and how is digital health becoming a component of that right which which i think is a, a much bigger topic about how you kind of fuse those two worlds and then we can just have a have a you know a chit chat how about that yeah yeah for sure cool Love that well i can start please i will say my life has not been that long yet according to me but okay. <laughs> um let's see so my background is actually in um economics and uh public health and I don't think I've ever wanted to be in healthcare, to be honest. It just sort of, it kind of happened (laughs) in a way. And um, I guess that's usually what happens uh, for a lot of people. But I was kind of in this finance track. I have a lot of friends um, in private equity and investment banking now. Actually, most all of my friends are there, uh, except for myself. Um, You know, but I, I knew for a while that public health was something that, you know, that I wanted to get into. And, you know, the reason being is actually I'm from an, I don't know how far back we want to go about my history, but not very many people know. Yeah. Actually, Steve, nobody knows about my history, not even a lot of my colleagues. So maybe we can, we can talk about it here. I hope it's not, you're not like part of some witness protection program. Cause if you are, you really shouldn't (laughs) use this platform to come clean. Yeah. Actually, Steve, my name is not Sophie. (laughs) (laughs) No. How Um, far back do you want to go? You can choose how far back you'd like to go. Was that an open question? You know, let's talk about this because it's important for the public public history. It is a public history, but um, it's, it's important for public health. So, you know, I'm actually from a very, very small town in California called El Centro. Okay. They actually became incredibly famous across the U.S. during the recession of 2008. Okay. Not because of some grandeur opportunity, but because it was the single city in the United States 
with nearly 99% unemployment rate in 2008. Wow. 99%? Nearly 99%. It was like 98.8. It's on Wikipedia. You can look it up. Wow. What happened? Why? Right. About that. We're going to, that's a lot of public policy now, but (laughs) it's a huge agricultural city. Okay. Tons of migrants. There's a lot of international companies. It's it's a bordering town of California to Mexico, okay. a city in Mexico called Mexicali. There's a lot of international employers there. Um, there's a lot of federal employers there as well. Okay. One of the larger judiciary courts, I think, are based there. But there's one single hospital that covers nearly an entire region of maybe 360,000. Wow, that's a lot of residents. Right. But again, an entire region, right? And that was actually my first experience. I don't even remember how old I was back then, but all I remember, Steve, was even though our family had a general practitioner, even though we did have insurance, what was really interesting to me is that it was so difficult to even get an appointment for a flu flu vaccine. Right. And so my mother would take us to the community clinic. It was the public health clinic that was set up by, you know, the, the uh, obviously the public health authorities. Yeah. And so it was so much easier to find clinicians there. And they were clinicians coming in from San Diego, from Orange County. And so that was actually my experience with healthcare. And I think part of that really had to do with a lot of the journey into my, you know, going into public health, going into economics. So now fast forward, um, I still ended up deciding to stay in healthcare. And for a while, I was an independent consultant. Okay. <laughs> for a while, at least like five years. And honestly, it was it was really fun. I picked up quite a few um, projects here and there. I've worked with the Office of Innovation, um, the White House, uh, with, through the White House uh, back in the day. And um, I was a part of the Blue Button Initiative, the large project that, you know, um, the Office of Innovation decided to set up and say, hey, look, why don't patients have access to their own data in the United States? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> so they thought maybe it's a good idea to set up a platform where people can do that. And so we actually rolled it out with the VA. So that's kind of a little bit on like the, the public, public side. And mm-hmm. then on the private side, this, that, what, when, what year was this? Like 2010, maybe. And this is when a lot of private companies started getting really interested about health technology. But mm-hmm. health tech was always there. It's just back in the day, it was called e-health or like mobile health, right? We've yeah. all heard of those before. Um, you know, big data, you know, um, internet of things. And, you know, people still say that. Um, and there, you know, it was that that moment in time where I did become involved in a lot of technology projects. And I don't know if it's because, you know, I, I was already living in San Francisco that probably right. had to do with it because we're in Silicon Valley. Um, but then people started realizing, oh, you know, technology has always been a thing and healthcare is still inundated with a bunch of problems, a bunch of inefficiencies. Maybe digital health can help. Right. Yeah. Not only help people live healthier lives, um, but help physicians with workflows and, you know, 
maybe may, may, maybe there might be a way for it to help maybe i don't know maybe maybe right maybe. that's what people were saying back <laughs> open question potentially there there is potential i believe i heard that saying quite a few times and so you know from government to private institutions um there was a lot of requests uh, coming in. And so I was actually really fortunate enough to work with actually Bayer was, Bayer used to be one of my clients back in the oh, day, nice. this program, actually that they used to be called grants for apps. But okay. I do remember that email coming in and my boss being like, do you want to take up this project? It's a big pharma trying to go digital. And I was yeah. like, pharma really. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's history. Right. Um, yeah. But no, and, and, you know, a lot of consulting companies too. Listen, the McKinsey's, the BCG's of the world, they had no idea what they were doing, but like literally 10 plus years ago, yeah. right? Um, in digital health. And so, yeah, this is- Was there any, um, like how much like clinician involvement was there back in the day? Because like to your point around the BCG's and the McKinsey's who people pay huge amounts of money to advise on things, like- like how much how connected was it like people actually going and talking to clinicians and be like tell us the problems that you have let's try and get under the skin of the user stories let's figure out these requirements let's go or is it kind of completely separate no completely separate absolutely none i think there was always like this handful of clinicians um that are you know big advocates of digital health but back then it's kind of how it's kind of how this startup world starts, right? Like a startup yeah. thinks of a great idea, only thinks about, you know, that consumer, the consumer never thinks about anyone else that's supposed to use their product. It, it was kind of like that, but it was completely separate. Yeah. Zero, not zero clinician interaction, but I would say very, very little. And it was very separate. I know the American Medical um, Association, I mean, they, they weren't, they, I don't think they had digital health. Um, right back in the day and as they did it was just again a few handful of clinicians who said oh this could be interesting medical school education you know forget it, it there was nothing there um i remember there were several professors back in the day who actually said to me you know there would never be a point in time where a physician can ever see a patient um on skype that's what they said. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I, love I believe that. I believe the precursor was don't be ridiculous. There will never be a moment in time where a physician's interaction can ever be over, you know, you, you can't be prescriptive over the phone. You can't be prescriptive yeah. over I, Skype. So I, I re- you know? remember I remember when Babylon Health, which we can kind of come on to and chat about, which just completely flamed out. But the um the um I remember when they started in the UK, that was basically like the general position was don't be silly. No one's ever going to do a virtual GP appointment like that won't ever work. Not just from the GP perspective, but they were like, patients don't want that. It's like patients as this like generic group. You mean like there's no patient that would prefer it? Like there's no like, you know, it's kind of interesting. Right, right. Like, who, who are you really talking about? And I think that's kind of the beauty of technology. Right. And I think. That's where a lot of people don't understand because technology is, again, very consumer, right? It doesn't matter if a doctor doesn't want to use it. Like, there will be patients who ask for it. And I think that's what's been happening in the last couple of years where there's also a push but a pull, right? Yeah. Where people are asking, like, 
Why doesn't your clinic have virtual scheduling? Why are you giving me pieces of paper? Could you send yeah. me a PDF to my email? Can you send me a text reminder? Why do I need to circle it on my wall calendar? You know, like so, like in the in the US, so in the US, so you're where, which is where you are now, and Germany. Yeah. But I think there's an issue in the UK. This is just me, like you know, spitballing, but I don't know what you think, but for the most part the healthcare system doesn't necessarily treat the patient as a customer right and 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 the patient doesn't have really a huge amount of choice now there are obviously some people that self-select and go private but even then they don't really have a choice like it's not in the same way as like okay well i could go to sainsbury's or tesco's or waitrose to do my shopping i can get the same products in each one and i can change and i can swap or i can use uber or bolt or i could get a black cab or i actually have a freedom of choice there which then mm. obviously flows down into how those businesses compete against each other the services the pricing the offerings like it separates those incentives whereas like in healthcare they don't it's not really the same thing like i i guess in america and, and other places you can shop around between insurance providers and stuff like that but at the end of the mm. day if your general practitioner does it in that particular way, the 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 burden and friction of you changing, even if you can change, is like really high, you know? Right, right. And, you know, it's fascinating too, because I think in the UK, yes, but that's still a lot more freedom than most other European countries, I would say. Oh, yeah? Um, every. Everyone comes with a lot of, you know, I think a lot of issues <laughs> in health. I mean, we all know healthcare has a lot of issues. But for example, in the U.S., I mean, I think it also is about like the education, right? Like people don't really know where to go. Like, and also, even though you have technology at your fingerprints, you have, you know, Google, you can always look it up. It's not, it's very rarely that like people will be able to find these services that you know they either love or that they really need because again i think the intrinsic value of healthcare right now across the world is like emergency services technically right yeah. like unless you really need it you're not going to go out and look for it so i think yeah. part of it has to do with you know the education side of it like us understanding and us knowing that these things are out there because i know i know that there's probably a startup <laughs> for to order prescription like online there's probably four right yeah, but then do other people know that at least and so i think part of it has to do with that but then again yeah you're right like you really don't have a freedom of movement in healthcare and i don't know some people like that some people think you know it's okay to have these sets of standard standardized right yeah. let's call it standardized places where you can go and then find one person you don't like the doctor oh well yeah. <laughs> you know um and then there's another format where it's you know if you don't like the doctor then you can probably go find another one or probably find other opportunities somewhere else um but yeah i don't but know I mean, is there something it, unique about health that that means that it's sort of different to other categories like to the point around yeah you know, that we were talking about before is like well then when digital health I mean there was always technology so you know this kind of I don't know sort of fake explosion of suddenly oh look let's make health digital sort of like okay cool then there's lots of startups that started to do different bits and bobs but I felt to begin with at least it was very geared around the systems it was like big IT infrastructure efficiency like things like in that sense, data related stuff. 
And actually, like some of the patient facing stuff started to come in in the last sort of five to 10 years. But that might be wrong. No, 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 you're you're right. But I oh God, this is like a you're opening a can of worms. Well, that's, we got we got <laughs> another 40 minutes, you know, Okay, that's good. That's good. Yeah, because healthcare is so different. Right. Like yeah. you don't use healthcare the same way I use healthcare, right? And no. not and your neighbor probably doesn't use it the same way. And I think part of this is exactly the reason why I went into public health, because it's it's so interesting, you know, social determinants, right? Mm-hmm. And I know people only use it. I hate it when people only use social determinants to determine like underprivileged societies because it's not that's incorrect. Right. <laughs> right? We're all a part of this umbrella of social determinants. And when eighty percent of your healthcare is determined by where you live, yeah. <laughs> how much money you make, whether you're male or female, then it opens like a whole nother world of, you know, who uses it, why do they use it, you know, where yeah. do we find the best opportunities, right? And so I think healthcare is so, so, so different in that way. And this is why it's so convoluted. Yeah. Um, right. Like There's so many industries all in one. It, it, uh, yes. Because like you said, big data, all of that stuff. Yes, it's there. Although, is it? Is it good enough yet? I don't know. I don't think so. I, don't, I mean, I, we, don't still, we still don't really have complete universal electronic health records, do we, in the UK it, or the US or Germany? I don't know if we do. I'm not sure about France no. and Spain and Italy. I'm not sure. We, we don't, right? And it, this has been around for decades. Right? Yeah, so exactly. why isn't it available in healthcare? And yeah. I think, again, like these tools and platforms, et cetera, right, that are also coming out. Again, you can't use it cross-border. You know, it's meant for a very certain set of people. And it's also coming from like the startup side. It's super frustrating, right? Because then you have investors where you're saying, you know, investors want you to make an exit in four years. And it's like, this is healthcare. You do realize that the deficit in healthcare, like people talk about the healthcare market being what, like over a hundred billion in the US, we have a debt of over a trillion dollars. That's not profit. That's all debt. This is what people have to realize. Healthcare is not a profit. Remember that healthcare is a debt. Right. Yeah. I think this is the biggest um, issue that we see, but that's a, a, another. No, I think um, whole well, other... we can pick this up. So my, my producer, Johan, is saying that we need to go to our first commercial break. So oh, we're going to okay. be right back with Sophie Park from Bayer Pharmaceuticals and other illuminary places um, after two minutes. We'll be right back. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Apples and pears, beef and skittles, cider with rosy, common or garden, ant and deck, fish and chips, mum and dad. UK Health Radio and Health Triangle magazine. Each is good by itself, but enjoying both is always better. Add Health Triangle magazine to your monthly health regime. Check it out at ukhealthradio.com. Strawberries and cream. Once upon a time, human slavery was just a fact of life. Right now, animal abuse is often considered normal. In time, it won't be. Animal Aid campaigns peacefully against all forms of animal abuse and promotes cruelty-free living. Check out animalaid.org.uk. It's time for a kinder world. 
the station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and my guest this week, Sophie Park, Managing Director at Bayer, Lev- um, Bayer Pharmaceuticals, not Bayer Leverkusen, the football club, Bayer Pharmaceuticals, uh, the pharmaceutical business. Um, I wish. So, kind of like <laughs> a bit of an automatic brain fade there. Um, and before the break, we were kind of digging into the differences around healthcare, health tech, how to develop businesses, what's different, what's not. I want to sort of switch it up a little bit and pick up on something that we talked about in the introduction, which is how does Big Pharma or how has Big Pharma been doing, is doing digital? Because traditionally, and you jump in and correct me if I'm wrong, but but we're a broad church of listeners. So I want to kind of make sure we're all on the same page. Pharma companies, generally speaking, historically made drugs to sell to people to treat diseases treat conditions vaccinate people whatever it ultimately was that was there which is very much a physical product being churned out at volume at scale and so on so like how have they kind of coped with this digital explosion digital health they're coping (laughs) (laughs) coping they're coping coping um listen there's there's Gosh, pharma has a long way to go. Um, I, I've only been in the, you know, my colleagues have been in this industry much longer than I have, but you know, I've only been in it for what I still less than 10 years. Right. And a lot has changed in terms of what pharma can do, what pharma has done in the innovation space and also digital, but let's talk about digital specifically. I'm not talking about, you know, biotech and and the R and D aspect of it, but Listen, pharma are generally not device companies. They're not software companies either. They're not cloud and data infrastructure companies. They're not SAP, right? No. And it's been a huge hurdle. And I mean, just even working at Bayer alone, right? I've like, there's been, I will say, I, I can't say that there hasn't been strides because there are right Mm. you know a lot of pharma companies are doing their part they you know a lot of like even Novartis and and even Pfizer right they're offering their they're offering their consumers um, digital products right Um, in conjunction or, or what we like to call companion tools right but I think the biggest question a couple of years ago that a lot many pharma companies had was can we go beyond a companion product, right? Mm -hmm. Like, can we go beyond what's, you know, within our portfolio? But again, right, in order to be an AI company, in order to be a data company, you also need to have those skill sets. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I think it's like a bit, so let's let's dial it back a sec. So it's interesting you brought up Novartis. So the company that I, um, that my company PopDog, we work with Novartis. Um, we were part of the Heart Health Catalyst. So around oh, nice. trying to increase access to lipid testing, um, you test more people for lipids, you analyze their heart risk, you can get more people on statins into treatment and so on. And therefore you lower the incidence of, of heart attacks, both in primary and secondary prevention. So that all, all makes sense. And I think this area of companion things is like the obvious one. It's sort of like company A makes a drug, 
mm-hmm. everyone uses a phone. So can we make an app that helps people adhere to the drug or take more of the drug or demonstrate efficiency or demonstrate how good the drug is or whatever it is? It's sort of like it either helps the system to distribute the drug or mm-hmm. helps the person take the drug, all of which is like designed towards the same endpoint, either on a micro level with the person or a macro level with a kind of a country or a system. So that like, I think that that's sort of like entry level, right? And absolutely, like, but it's still so difficult. I mean, I don't know what your experience was with no artists, but again, it's, it's, it's so difficult for pharma companies to even scale, even though we have the talent inside, right? We have market access, we have, you know, pharmacovigilance, we have the ability to to scale but again like we we don't always know how to scale tech companies well i I think it's (laughs) a bit like what's what's the so what factor here for a farmer it's sort of like what what, where's the why here which is sort of like you know yes they could build an ai function they 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 could develop a device they could have loads of them have innovation hubs and startup competitions and incubating and all this other kind of stuff and it still just comes around to the the why so a really good example the, the one of the best examples that i can find and have come across is something called is something that roche do um roche roche you know tomato tomato um and they're one of the largest medical device manufacturers in the world they have their own incubation where they bring on smaller medical device manufacturers or startups or things that are already mm-hmm. devices that then they want to integrate up into the larger roche ecosystem you get the benefit of roche's scale etc cetera, etc cetera. that makes sense to me that that I get because you, you're bringing up. It's almost like what farmers do with biotechs, which is like there are little biotechs springing up doing their own research. And when things look promising, pharma kind of can scoop them up or scoop up the compounds and scale up and things like that. It's sort of like a part of this. It's part of the same spectrum where, where yeah. I slightly struggle with it is sort of why a big farmer would start to dabble too much in something that is not necessarily aligned with their drug portfolio or, you know, what they're trying to do. I I think it's, I'm not saying I have the answer. I just start to sort of question it a bit more. That's all. I think there's, there's a lot of factors in that. It's not, you know, you can always say, right. Like there may not be a drug in the portfolio for that, but it's because there are certain indications um, within the within diseases that are yeah. crossovers, right? Like certain comorbidities that are always there. So, yeah. for example, like we do know that many of our disease areas, like one of the comorbidities or one of like the general overlapping indication is mental health, right? right? And although I bet that overlaps over like, quite a lot of things, I suspect, like tons, right? Tons of it, right? And so it's like, why are we not? Because I think ultimately, at the end of the day regardless of what people think of big pharma, I think there are, you know, there are still very good people working for these companies. And I think at the end of the day, you know, these people are trying to make the lives of people better, right? People that use their product, well, people that use their services. Let's, let's pick and, up on that. While you, let's pick up on that. Now you mention it, like, which is kind of like this idea where, and look, let's, let's be completely clear. And I have to be careful what I say, because if you say too much about the pandemic, then Spotify flags your podcast. Um, so, really? Yeah, they um they like AI scrape what we're saying. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. And they put like a little flag on the episode and stuff like that. So anyway, um, yeah, it's it's it's, it's yeah, it's mad. Even so now. bizarre. So, yeah, it's kind of bonkers, isn't it? It's so like <laughs> um 
we've so, been flagged. But, but I was gonna say, yeah. This obviously got exacerbated by the pandemic yeah. because of farmers, farmers, farmers' role in the vaccines and all that kind of other stuff. But like, I think farmer does get a bit of a bad rep, right? In in general, because. Where does everybody think the antibiotics come from? Where does everyone think the cancer drugs come from? Where does everyone think any drug you take to make you, your family better, where do you think that comes from? Now, you could say it shouldn't come from Big Pharma. It should be developed in some altruistic, not-for-profit, something or other, which which is fine. But like at some point, somebody has to pony up some money to do some R&D to actually move stuff and get it out. So... I don't know. I mean, how would you think about this idea of pharma or a force for good? Like, how would you kind of explain it? I think pharma can be a force for good. I mean, somebody has to do it, right? It can't be a guy in their garage with three people doing it, right? You can't do that. Like, in order to scale drugs, you know, it requires tons and tons of hours, lots of money to go into it. It's not, you know, it, it. truly takes a village internationally in multiple locations in order to get the right drugs to the right people. So I think at the end of the day, you know, this whole thing about pharma being evil, yes, granted, there are maybe a couple, I mean, I don't know if you saw the Netflix show, but I'm not going to say which pharma it was, right? But there is a Netflix series where it really paints pharma in a terrible um, oh, yeah, the, um... light. How, however, you know, it does require a lot of energy and effort to do that. And I think, you know, when pharma wants to go digital, granted, yes, there may not be the skill sets internally to scale it. But at the same time, you know, I think pharma is now starting to understand that we need to offer holistic solution. I hate using the word holistic, but I, and all around, all encompassing, all, around, all encompassing, exactly. Because we know that you are not your disease, right? Yeah. And that even though you have cancer, we don't know what your caregivers are going through, what your physicians are going through. Can we help with the workflow solution? That's a part of, you know, what we sell. And I think, you know, from a business perspective, obviously it makes sense because then if it is all encompassing, right, people are more likely to utilize it. But then again, here's the aspect of technology. Technology has to be desirable. It has to be easy to use, like so easy to use that it's kind of like, kind of like your iPhone. You know, you don't know where your apps are, but you kind of know where they are. You know what I mean? It has to be that easy. Like the user experience of it has to be so flawless and seamless. And that's what health tech should be. That's what digital health should be. But we are definitely not there, right? And I think that's really what pharma is trying to do, because I think they understand that, yeah, sure, like, we can have a cancer drug, we can have a drug for heart failure. But again, you know, a lot of these people require so much more upkeeping, right? Like, we need to make sure we can monitor them remotely. Like, is there a way we can yeah support with the wellness journey so and like i think one of the ways one of the one of the way it's not this is the thing it's like it depends on how you define digital health it's kind of a bit of an annoying phrase sometimes i find Mm -hmm. but like let's take decentralized clinical trials for an example right yeah brain dead nailed on makes total sense to me right which is in this day and age why do you need to be dragging large volumes of people to centralized locations when you could potentially monitor their blood values at home 
by yeah. sending a kit to their house they could milk their finger into a pot yes that takes 15 minutes and yes it's kind of it's, it's annoying and frustrating but you could do it that way instead of and that that makes total sense but i'm not even sure necessarily that classes is digital health even though that technically the the businesses that offer that claim that they are in digital health it's like you're sending a kit to someone's house they're filling up a pot and it's coming back to a laboratory yep what, yeah. What is di- what the results are generated by a computer health? and uploaded into a database, but they always were. You know, Steve, but here's my wish, though. I hope that in the future that we no longer have to call technology used in healthcare digital health. Like it right. should just be like, I don't know, the Internet. Or here's my product. This technology. is what it does. Here's, this is my service. This is my product. Yeah. yeah. Like. I'm hoping that that's the direction that we're going because again, technology is so consumer driven, regardless of if you're med tech, whatever, e-health, mobile health, digital health. I think ultimately, hopefully, ultimately down the line, it'll just be technology, right? Yeah. Just so what it reminds me of when I, many moons ago when I started my career, I, I started in advertising many, many, many years ago on a graduate scheme. And um, every advertiser, it was just at the, the basically the point where you could advertise on the internet and do different things. So each advertising agency had a digital unit, right? Separate from everything else. And it was called like digital advertising. And it was like, you know what I mean? It was like like anything on the internet. Yeah, exactly. Anything on the internet, right? (laughs) And it's kind of become a bit anachronistic now. Or like with Uber, no one says, oh, you know, it's just, it's just technologists, it's tech business, it's technology business. No one's like, oh, your digital cars. Gotcha. Your digital taxi. Digital transport. (laughs) Got it. Right it's it's right. just a bit prosaic um right. yeah i think i think it's kind of i i too hope that that's the kind of direction that direction that, that it's going in the other thing that i you know I, I get your view on this but there's been a big there was a story that broke in the uk i think it was the uk it might have been everywhere but around um antibiotic resistance so mm. there was a there was a i can't remember what prompted the story but it was sort of I think it was a clinician, another clinician, there's been many blowing blowing the whistle, flagging that they had a patient who had been through every single antibiotic for a and 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 the 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 infection that they had had resisted and beaten everything, including the last line, which is the what I can't remember what the name of the antibiotic is, but it's like the last line one that you use after you use twenty others and that one almost certainly works and yeah. it didn't. And so and then there's this big debate where you have people saying, well, we, we we have to solve this. This is a huge global emergency, which it is. And then they're like, well, we, 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 who, who, who's going to, who's going to develop the antibiotic? Oh, don't, yeah. Farmer's going to do it. And farmer's like, well, I mean, I, I could, but <laughs> do you understand that we're talking about 10, 15 years worth of development, hundreds of millions of dollars, like, and yeah. then it's going to, and your view is it's going to go generic. And like, so who's going to fund you want me to you want me to fund that and it's like it shows there's like a disconnect between this kind of expectation in public mm-hmm. health and what an understanding of how drugs are developed like a lack of reality if that makes any sense like i don't know i don't know what you think about it i mean clearly it's an emergency i think antibiotic resistance is a massive massive problem it is it's a huge problem and i will say it is a public health problem but i do believe that there are other ways to kind of alleviate that problem. And I don't think the solution is to get multiple pharma companies to start an R&D process for multiple, like stronger antibiotics, you know? 
I think that it's more around physician education. I think it's more Mm -hmm. around patient education. I think it's more around like it has to do with economics rather than funneling more money into pharma, trying to build even stronger antibiotics because that's clearly the problem right now. (laughs) It's an economic, I agree. And it it is an economic issue in and of itself because the pharma is saying, well, we don't really think there's a business case here and we're a business. So we're not going to put our own money up or our investors money up. If you'd like to give us the money to do it, we could probably figure it out. But this doesn't stack up in and of itself. I mean, it technically doesn't. But again, at the same time, it's not the job of pharma companies to, I don't know, but this is a huge question, right? Is it a private pharma company's job to manage public health? Question mark. It's a great question. I think it's a really interesting question because... Who are pharma companies' number one customers is public health systems, right? Some. Some. (laughs) Not all. Not all. (laughs) Some. But this is where the huge disconnect comes from, right? Because a lot of countries, even the UK, right, you have a public health system. But again, it's also, there's also private, right, systems as well. And I think at the end of the day, yeah, this question is really interesting. And I was talking to a colleague about this because we were having almost the same discussion, but it was not about antibiotics. (laughs) It was was about something else. But at the same time, it's, uh, again, it's technically speaking, right? Now from a more commercial side, it's a private company, right? And private companies also have investors that they need to report to, right? And And, um, we hope that, Go on, sorry. No, and we hope that government institutions are set up for situations like this. And so I think it's almost unfair to think that, you know, private companies need to be used in order to support public health needs. However, another argument from that side is, yeah, you're right. Who are the customers that a lot of these pharma companies are serving, right? They're technically serving a part of public health. But at the same time, if we really look at it from a very black and white perspective, it's not their job to manage a country's public health system. They can help support it, right? Um, But who manages it? And I think a lot of government institutions have frameworks available to do it but then why is that and I think that question is more deeper down into like why isn't our public health system the way it actually should be and it's not just the UK it's not just countries um, across you know the oh, it's a- broader EU it's not even just the US like every single country that at least I know of has major major issues in healthcare and managing public health and and it is a big issue because, again, who are the people that are suffering, right, when public health isn't managed? <laughs> it's us. Yeah. It's the economy, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I think the other thing that sometimes people forget and politicians, I think, well, on the face of it, seem to forget this, is that if it's a public company, the people that run that public company, some of them will be directors of that public company, but all of them will have a legal liability responsibility to the shareholders to run it in a way that is responsible and so they open themselves up to potentially serious risk if they don't run it in a way that is deemed to be responsible so there's an element where 
you know, they have to, there's sort of like a baked in pathway here in the system, which is it's a private company. The money comes from shareholders. There's a responsibility to return a, a return on investment to shareholders. If that doesn't appear to be happening or if someone's acting against that, then that opens that person up to a liability and so on and so forth. It's not quite that black and white, but it it is that that, that can't really be escaped. So this idea that like it's I agree, it's like it's this idea that big pharma or pharmaceutical companies should just quote do the right thing and invest investors' money in something that doesn't that's not that's just that's like that's like fairy tale thinking. It's not going to happen. You know, you're right that it's not black and white. But if we really want to talk about some of the nuances, I mean, you're right. It's not always a fairy tale. But I, but like every major pharma company, you know, they also have right. It's called corporate social responsibility, right? right? Um, and UN sustainability goals, right? Okay, they spend hundreds of millions of dollars, right, already to kind of support a lot of these initiatives as well, right? And point. so I think it's 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 really important for that, you know, again, pharma companies this large, they also do support in other ways, right? Like kind of not, I, w- I don't want to say indirect, because a lot of these projects and opportunities are very direct, and we know exactly where the money goes to. Um but like, you know, a lot of some pharma companies are tackling climate change, right? Some pharma right. companies are tackling, right. And so I think, I don't think it's necessarily fully fair to say, you know, it's the job of private companies to manage public health. But then when the world's public health system is this broken, like whose job is Who's it? going to do it? Right. My, right. my producer, Johan, is waving frantically at me that we have to go to oh. a final commercial break. So <laughs> we will be back. In two minutes with the final part of this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, and my guest this week, Sophie Park. We'll be right back. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Animal Aid campaigns peacefully against all forms of animal abuse and promotes cruelty-free living. We've been doing this for over 40 years. Every year, more and more people are living satisfying lives completely cruelty-free. Check out animalaid.org.uk. It's time for a kinder world. A cancer diagnosis can be scary and stressful for everyone involved. Hello Love is a contemporary living space and well-being center in central London where anyone can come and learn about illness prevention and non-toxic practice. Inside, you will find a vegan restaurant, juice bar, and holistic dojo that encourage lifestyle changes to help heal mind, body, and spirit connection. Cancer patients are offered free sessions. To find out more, please visit us at hellolove.org. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Hello and welcome back to this week's Health Tech Hour, the final part of this week's show with me, Steve Roost, uh, CEO of PopDoc, and my guest, Sophie Park, who is currently at Bayer Pharmaceuticals. So, um, Sophie, thanks a lot for all of the, I mean, like, I love the backwards and forwards. This is what the show's all about. So this is like absolutely perfect. Um, in the final part of the show, I want to cover up a couple of things that I had written down. So the first one is 
just you mentioned it in the beginning like that you've done some work in and around the white house and with those very i don't know which administration it was and i'm sure that there's a huge amount that you can't tell us otherwise secret service will like shoot you or something but um jeez don't um, say that because now they're tapping us now yeah okay they're tapping in and it's tapping in (laughs) but um what what was what's you know what are the kind of general lessons or things that you learned from those sort of interactions with an institution like the white house You know, what's so fascinating is people always talk about how government is so slow and so mundane, right? But one of the things I really appreciated in working with our government, so it's actually two administrations. I I worked both under a Republican and a Democratic um, administration, so Bush and then also Obama. Um, But, you know... During that time, what I truly appreciate is, you know, everyone knew, everyone was an expert. I almost felt like I was a black sheep, right? Because I was, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. I was just getting into this, right? (laughs) And so everyone had tons of experience. And what was so amazing and the biggest thing that I learned is no idea or no vision is ever big enough. Okay, And I think this was really the way that a lot of the people who work there thought, and which is kind of fascinating because when you think government, you think, you know, slow, you think yeah, big like organization. conservative, steady, Eddie, don't rock the boat. Yeah. Yeah. No, but these group of people that I worked with within the office of innovation, I mean, they were, and, and health and human services. Like one of the things that I found was so I mean, it was so valuable also to me, like in, in a work setting was that every single individual there had one thing in mind and that was to serve the people that they served. And I think that was really, it was good for humility too. Cause you know, yeah. from a business perspective, I mean, now I work for big pharma, right. We're not going to go into that, but again, like they truly cared about what was being put out there and no vision was big enough. And then one of the biggest things that I learned and I still have, like a screenshot of okay. the white. I don't know if you can see this, but it's like the White House like notepad. And oh, cool! One of the people that worked there was, you know, dream in years, you plan in months, you evaluate in weeks, and you ship it out daily. That's cool. Proto- prototype for one x, build for ten x, and you engineer for one hundred x. Right. And I think every idea or discussion that we had it was within these parameters because again when you're a government you're not looking out for one individual person you're not looking out for yourself you're looking out for an entire country right and so I think it was really fascinating to think in that setting because sometimes even startups right you say well yeah there's like a couple hundred thousand people who have heart failure yeah you know but it's really all couple hundred thousand when you're talking about a couple hundred million yeah <laughs> right yeah exactly and so I think that's that was my biggest learning like nothing was ever too big it's like they almost wanted you to think huge right yeah because in order to serve at that kind of scale you can't you can't start small and I think that was what was really interesting because a lot of investors tell startups start small and then you scale but like yeah. working in government was more like no you yeah. need to be at scale when we go out. <laughs> like yeah. there's, there is no test and pull back. Like when we, when we roll out to the VA, like that's it. That's the <laughs> whole know? thing. Yeah. Like <laughs> that's I am um, the whole thing. <laughs> so it reminds me a little bit of like slightly different, but 
I don't even remember back in the day. So bef- just before places like Shake Shack and Byron Burgers and Meat Liquor and all, there was like this explosion of really good burger joints, basically. There was just like yeah. McDonald's, Burger King and stuff like that. So then all of these places start to come out and burger, McDonald's was getting hammered. It's like, why can't you do organic beef? Why can't you do this? Why can't you do that? Why can't you do this? Right, right, right. And like, why can't you offer crinkly fries? And why can't you have healthier food? And like, what is it going on? And basically, I saw something from the CEO and he was like, what we can't and won't execute on anything that we can't ship out to 200,000 stores at the same time. Like we mm-hmm. can't operate on a single shop level. We have to be yeah. able to build, if we do it, we're building it for the world, basically. We're not building it for one shop somewhere. We actually have to implement yep. this. So in, in order, what that means is that if we go organic or, or whatever it is, or, or like an, a classic one was, um, at least in the UK, at least, they didn't. The, uh, there was a big kind of pushback about all of the ingredients has to be sourced from the UK, right? So all your potatoes for your fries from the UK, all your eggs for your egg McMuffin, all your et cetera, et cetera, right? Oh, so the guy's like, well, I didn't know about this. That's all well and good, but I, that means I need like a gajillion cows, a gajillion chickens. Like, right. I need like <laughs> entire giant potato plantations. Right. In the London UK, Piccadilly like, is turning into a potato farm. Yeah, like, like, like he's like, I, I, we can do it, farm. right? But I, I, that's that's right. how I plan. It's not, you know, so it's sort of similar. It's yeah. about how do you think about yeah. scale first? Yeah, but you have to also think about quality, right? And like part of what the CEO is talking about is the quality of the experience yes. that the customers get, right? And yeah. I think this is hugely important because God, Steve, so many startup companies do not think about the experience. (laughs) Like we are talking about healthcare where it is so difficult to navigate. I don't even like calling in to schedule an appointment. Like if I can do it online, I wish to do it online. I now do not look for clinics that don't have virtual scheduling, honestly, because I don't have time for that. Like waiting Mm -hmm. on the phone for 10 minutes, you know? And it's about the experience. And at the same time, that was what was really fascinating because every idea that was put on the table was at scale. It needed to be rolled out at scale, which meant, you know, tons of work, tons of leg hours. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but that's why, right? It's because yeah. of a user experience. And it's and, it, and that user experience it, needs to be consistent, like user exactly. one to user a million in theory has to have the same experience, which is what this McDonald's guy was going on about. Right. And then from an efficiency standpoint, it's like, if there was a bug, if you were trying to register, we don't have to worry about 200,000 locations that yeah. this is being scaled out. And we know exactly where the problem is. And we know exactly where, what we need to do to fix it. And the engineers yeah. know too. Right. So that's why. Right. Did and you, I um, think for, you, sorry, yeah. go on. No, I said that's what healthcare is about, right? It's not just about one person. At the same time, you have to be as personalized, but you also have to be extremely usable. And right, did you, um, so did you read the book Premonition about the um the pandemic, the chart, the the um the Michael Lewis one? It was um have because I was I'm interested to know whether you crossed over with that group because they were in the W found the W administration. There's like this crack group that built the first pandemic plan. It's a super no, interesting I have book not, if you can get a copy. Okay, I will read that. I I, I have not read that. Yeah, super interesting. No. Um, so with the last few minutes of the show, 
what we normally like to do is kind of use it so that the person on can start to pass on some of their pearls of wisdom, you know, more around how they've managed to stay on their own mission, what keeps them kind of positive, how they keep going. Because everyone that we've had on the show obviously has their own personal experiences, but they're generally united by a drive, sense of purpose, mission driven, passion. And, and, you know, we like to use these last few minutes to kind of unearth some of that stuff and, and sort of pass it on in the in the interests of sort of giving back to the listeners. So I don't know, over to you. What what kind of keeps you going and keeps you on mission? To me, it's really, um, it's really public health. I, I really believe that, you know, healthcare should, is a right. And I know that's so like easier said than done, right? And, you know, really what keeps me going is that there are still millions of people out there, I mean, a billion plus, right, if we really include the world um, out there that don't have the basic access mm-hmm. or the necessities of healthcare. And, you know, um, I think in this day and age where, you know, we have very wealthy countries, that shouldn't be the case, especially for healthcare. Mm-hmm. And really, that's what keeps me going. And, you know, from a micro level, it's, it's so it's very heartwarming when you see like companies, at least from our, our portfolio, right? When, when they send me like little snippets of, of patients that use their products and say, Hey, like your product has changed my life. And I'm like, okay, great. So, you know, we're giving out little mentorships here and there, but then it like changes someone's life. And I think, I think that's, what's, that's, what's great about healthcare because it's so personal at the time. Um, of, at the point of it's personal at the point of contact but right. you can really help scale to the masses and i think that's just healthcare great. in general needs a lot of help too so I, that's part I of the reason disagree. why <laughs> sophie we've come to the end of the show so thank you so much for coming on the show it was great to have you yeah thank you so much it was great uh, to be here this was fun <laughs> and thank you to everyone for listening as ever catch us on spotify catch the rest of the uk health radio roster on spotify Thanks again for listening and we'll be back again next week. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hobby.